2: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Quest
1: right, right, right. Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora.
2: All right,
0: y'all, it's Laia, and it's time for another Quest Love Supreme classic. This week, we continue with part two. Of Salam Remy, yep. In part two, Salam talks about making it in the music business, helping Amy Winehouse shape her style, and he even shares tales from the Latin Quarter. <laughs> yeah, that and so much more. So let's get ready for part two of Salam Remy from May second, twenty eighteen.
1: Last week, or part one of the Quest Love Supreme interview with Salam Remy, we talked about his early work with acts like Curtis Blow, MC Rail, and the House Rockers, and touched upon his work with the Fujis, including their breakout single, the remix of Nappy Hill. Salam also contributed Fujilad to the group's wildly successful second album, The Score. We ended part one with a question about how the success of that album affected the members of the Fujis. Here's the answer. In hindsight, and, uh, you know, part family member and part outsider looking in, whatever. Do you think that after 18 million copies of that album sold, did it serve them well or not? Hmm. Not like regrets. If you can go back and redo it again, whatever. But in Uh the aftermath of it, like. I think
3: ultimately it served them really well. I mean, I have this thing with artists who have done 10 million albums. Um, what happens after that? You know, whether it was Usher's Confessions, whether it was, you know, not many artists have been able to come back and have an Adele moment where they did it twice. I think Black Eyed Peas might have done that yeah. a couple times in a row. Um, you know, for Lauren Hill's career, it was the score into Miseducation because I still see the score is almost like a Frank to Back the Black, or like, you know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying, it's like a movement. Even though Blunt in the reality was there, there was something to follow up on that now gave you credibility, it gave everyone the opportunity to know your name, so now you had to just deliver on your next piece of work, not necessarily just have all those pieces. Um, I think it served them well to now get their art and their ability to still all eat to this day, you know, based upon something that came out 22 years ago. Why didn't um, you guys yeah. ever
4: do anything else cuz after, yeah, after but that y'all never you, you, you were no miseducation were you
3: Mm-mm. my last thing I did was uh the sweetest thing remix with the uh, swat swat <sighs> yeah so that was probably the last thing I did but you know just in general my conversation and who I am is something that's kind of happy so I wasn't going to fit into a sad song mode
5: it <laughs> just,
3: it wasn't going to work even you know people talk to me about you know even my work with Amy Winehouse and they're like those sad songs I'm like nah she's talking shit the whole time like maybe in the morning when your dick works or like the, 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 <laughs> the lyrics are all about uh their tongue-in cheek you know yeah I cheated on you but I heard love is blind like it's all smarter it's not love is yeah. a losing game it's not Super sad, mad records. It's like I'm gonna snap on you until you break. <laughs> you basically. I was trying uh, to
0: get "Fuck Me" pumps in my roll call, but I couldn't get the rhyme. But
3: you See, there you, Jesus. Fuck Actually, that's something I wrote that I actually had uh, prior to meeting her. This
0: is a story.
1: What? Uh,
3: you you to trying to get a
1: "Fuck Me" pump, pump story
3: from
0: well, Slimy really right I'm, now? I'm like, I'm lyric by lyric. Come like, on,
1: dog! I didn't even get the I didn't even get the Nas right, yet.
0: Hey, sorry. Oh, my bad. But
3: basically this twisted pinky yeah. is the story I have a twisted Uh-oh.
0: pinky that's crazy
3: yeah I dislocated it and basically there's a friend of mine who I recently just told three weeks ago where the story came from but they showed up at my house with a homegirl they were really drunk they couldn't get anywhere. They got alcohol poisoning. Cool. Um, <laughs> all right, it's cool. I, I'm going to go get y'all some water the next morning. I trip in my staircase. I hit my hand. I have my finger in two pieces. I'm like, oh, I can't play guitar. I can't play nothing. I'm my only broken bone in life. So I'm like, oh, word. That later that day, I'm like, yo, where y'all at? I'm at the studio. My finger's twisted. Oh, we in D.C. at the All-Star game.
5: Oh, these black girls—that's no, no, no. crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Word, all right, cool. And then the lyrics for that song basically wrote itself.
1: Ouch. Well, that was cute. All I and There you go. Um, how did you? I, I know I'm quasi okay. So you didn't work on Miss Education, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you do between nine ninety nine and and Nas comes in the picture? What two thousand two?
3: 2001 2001 um, yeah what'd you do 99 what was I doing 99 99 I bought soundworks which is underneath studio 54. um so that became my studio base I was working on a lot of my own label stuff I had um all my artists went to jail um major stress <laughs> <Wow. clears throat> I had a group called major stress <laughs> boy one what of those they? people went to jail Ross T has had a nine six million dollar. <laughs> records so Ross had his whole album done Ross went to jail yes. um is he still locked up now <clears throat> no nah, he's out okay. now he have been out for a long time but basically that happened then I bought my studio and then I just started experimenting I produced a group actually from Philly called live and direct um these four young brothers who sing and did some stuff mm-hmm. and what else 99
1: when See, you, I, I when worked you, on Virtual when you work-
3: and Sally before that. I'm trying to think what else came out around that. I was helping Angie Martinez with her up close and personal album.
1: When you work on an, when you work with an artist, like is there any sort of modus operandi that or or what do you look for when you decide, okay, I'm gonna mess with them?
3: Sometimes it's a relationship with somebody that brought them to me. But at this given point I've kind of crystallized it. I'm into people with distinctive voices. And what I really do, you know, some people are just like, well, I made the beat and then I'm now fitting this person onto it. I really try to talk to someone to get to figure out where's the resonance in there voice and then also on their lyrical voice then once i figure out where that is i'm just trying to get them to illuminate and now build music around it so by asking people what's their favorite songs what do you like what's the thing that you write to all the time everything else i start getting a picture for who they are and who i want to i'm pretty much taking myself as a fan like i don't know who you are and now does their voice number one make me inspired like you know Whenever I'm working with Nas, I want to hear the smoke mouth. I don't want to hear Nas sitting on the chair that's like Booker Rhymes' voice. Yeah. I want to hear you know, the poison voice. That's where it came. I was like, yo, that sound like you had your gold fronts in your mouth and a mouth full of smoke, so I want to hear that little extra energy into it. Um, I want to hear something that really sounds like people at their best. Um, and really, it's great voices and then the ability to tell a story. If lyrically, a bus your windows can continue to mm-hmm. tell a story, if you know, I heard love song when I first heard Amy. She started singing. Amy started singing "Um, Girl from Eponema mm-hmm. and then you know the first thing we wrote was "I Heard Love Is Blind" and "Cherry." So they were all about like the voices and the story, and then that inspires me to now sit down and work on a sonic palette that I feel like you know accompanies it.
0: So obvious follow-up question: and who's the 2018 distinctive voice that you're that's motivating you that you haven't? The Roots.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> the Roots has been a new a thing. Um,
0: oh, is that for real, y'all? Really?
3: Yeah, yeah.
1: Perfect. Is this we're we're I want to I want to come to him with with definite song ideas first, and then he can play rich.
5: Can
0: we get the, the re- rap singing join finally? Maybe
1: that. I mean, good. we'll do all that, but okay. it, we're, so we're gonna have to have material first. So we're just we've been fishing <laughs> the last two years creating songs, and now. Okay, so we'll bring them
0: The Roots, give me somebody. Else. Wait, you, 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 can, can I just ask? Can I, we he said, "Go to stay back the voices." Yes, well we we in, we rabbit hole land. We all over. No, Honestly, I'm
3: still looking for the voices, okay. so I'm still open and looking for it. I hear some voices here and there, but I'm just definitely looking for new voices to kind of inspire me. I'm at that point you now. I'll be 46 in a few weeks, and I'm kind of like at 50. I need thriller, mm. so I'm looking for the opportunity to be able to take someone who's either around already and helped them make that record that now pushes it past it. I look at it like how someone would have looked at Pharrell prior to Happy and said, oh man, you did it all already. Your day was there and he still made the biggest record of his career at a point where, where somebody wasn't necessarily looking for it. So I still feel like, you know, now I have a blister on my finger. I've been sitting there playing my upright bass for the last few weeks, trying to find something that resonates with me first and then resonates with my appears and then resonates with the world.
1: Yeah. As I said before, the roots. <laughs> there we go. How did you meet Nas? Um, Nas I met like
3: during that early period. Me and Ock and Ellie went to junior high together. So when Ock and Nas were running around trying to look for deals, I would always see Nas with him. But during 2001, I ran into him when he was working on the FUBU album. He had a verse on the Fatty Girl song that I don't think ever came out. Oh, wow. And I was doing a record for the FUBU album. Damn, was working nice. or so, not? I actually really had a copy. Was, yeah. The only record that I actually never got paid for. Wow, Thank boy. you, Shark. Wait, what um, <laughs>
0: song on the... It uh... was
3: a Beanie Man song called Bad Man Business. So that's the only song I never got. Well, yeah, somehow, I don't know how they got away with that. But anyhow... Um.
1: Wait, Fubu had an album. It yeah, yeah, was really was like fatty, girl. Yeah, fatty girl. I remember, I remember good. fatty girl. That was
4: I had my a drums. Of I had a copy. Right, I had a copy of it. It was yeah. That was the that was the chicken grease drum and Spanish guitar era of track yeah. masters. <laughs> I, I ain't like none of that shit. Exactly. <laughs> it seems so new
3: at the uh, time, Day-Li so futuristic. Too, just and, summing it all
0: mm-hmm. up. I thought Daylight had a song on that album.
3: Something like that. No, something that's you're thinking of Fat. From A.Y. Yeah, baby, baby Right, fat, basically. But bad. during that time, so I ran into Nas in L.A. Um, he was like, yo, you got any beats on you? He was kind of out there just laying low. And then I sent him. He, he came to you? Well, I saw him at that session. So I'd already met him before in passing in New York, but I saw him at the session because I was there to record Beanie Man, and I would record him. It was like during Grammy week or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then he was at the studio, so he was like, yo, What's up? Oh, dad, yo, you know, another cat from New York. What's going on? You got anything on you? So I gave him whatever beat CD I had with me. Then he exchanged, beamed two-way numbers. <laughs> and then he he was like, he texted me like, yo, I need some murder music, something that sound like whatever it was. So then I created what became what goes around. Um, I sat in the studio and messed with my organs and roads and pretty much composed that track. And then I sent him that and maybe a couple other joints. And then when he heard it, he was like, yo, I don't have anything that even feels like this. Because once again, Nas is on his jazz musician. Even like when he talks about Illmatic, he's like, he wanted stuff that musically put you in a mood and then put the drums to it, not just something that was like running quick like G-Rap. So the what goes around was that. And then he came back to New York and we started recording.
1: What do you think about his... I mean, much has been said about from every hip-hop stand on the internet and many a a chat board about his choice of music right not matching the greatness of his words or whatever like them not meeting so i mean at the time were you figuring that okay this is finally a chance for me to give him what he needs or um i don't know if i was there i mean
3: this was like the nostradamus album was just out so The Nostradamus album wasn't anyone's favorite Nas album at that time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, what was the leftover, whatever happened, you know, still for me, I was still in hate me now mode, which I always look at it and go, who in hip hop actually got away outside of part-time sucker by Mm KRS-One with actually rhyming on something that sounded like that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as hip hop purist heads, by the time we got to It Was Written, I was like, there's no large, there's no primo, there's no tip, mm-hmm. like nothing. Or oh, was okay? There's one primo. Like, I didn't get enough. I liked. Did you ask well, him, I, like, why he didn't? Um, Well, the, the reason why I think that during It Was Written time, he wanted to start It Was Written with Molly. So that's where On the Real and True Dialect came from. And then Molly played it on the radio. And then he was upset because Marley played True Dot on the real with, Mm -hmm. you know, put Screwball or whoever on it. So then that's when he was like, yo, I need to find producers. So then he went to, got with Trackmasters and they built what they built. Which, you know, to be honest, if he didn't ever go and make himself into a platinum artist one way or another, he might not still be around. So he did, you know, followed his instinct. He followed his instinct and did whatever it was he wanted to do with that. But also, also he felt like everybody else was rhyming in his flow, so he had to find a way to do something different because if he just kept rhyming in the same flow and everybody else was, it was weighing it down. So, I mean, from my perspective, it was just like, all right, yo, we never linked. We both had similar tastes. We both would go rebel without a pause. We would still listen to an album and go, oh, nah, story to tell is my dream. Like, we still pick the same. We both, yo, what you want to eat? All right, cool. Fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, candy yams. Like, we, <laughs> we the same. We have, like, mirrored kind of lives. And even a lot of the musicians that were in his dad's band or the same cast that I work with all the time. So I don't know if I had a perspective, like, I'm going to do this. I was just like, it'd be dope if we did some stuff. And at one point, um, like, the night when, the night before the, uh, Lauren Hill Unplug was recorded, she came down to the studio while we were there and played us all the songs. So that's the oh, reason no. why she was hoarse. She was ah, up little bit more played a all of songs? She played of a lot of songs. of at yeah, no inclusive. point did
0: you go, wait, 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 save your voice.
3: <laughs> she wanted to let me hear the songs. So it was that it was getting late. And he left. And then that was that. But of you know, the bottom line was that was part of sort 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 was, was sort like, you know of if my voice cracks, it cracks. You don't like it, be out of here. Oh, you don't like me unless I pay this makeup artist and that hairdresser? Then you don't like me. You like what I just paid for. That was that. But my point is with Nas, I just think it was um, us also finding a chemistry to where we he's able to come to me with the idea, yo, let's – I was listening to Bitches Brew yesterday, word. All right, cool, and I called my dude, yo, get, got the bass clarinet, and then we just go all the way there. Yeah, I was listening to some Bessie Smith or something like that, and then I would just go in that direction. So we have loads of records that were just musically matched in that way. And-
1: So are you able, you're able to make beats in real time in front of your client?
3: Yeah. Ooh, man. I That's... do that most of the time, actually. That's most of my records are, either while they're on the way or coming down the hole or Because I'm taking it off of what they're saying. I'm actually vibing off of their energy and what they're talking about. And I'm asking them, what do you like? Because I'm trying to figure out what notes actually resonate with them that's going to get them writing. And sometimes, you know, with Nas, if he likes a particular beat, he'll write 12 verses to the same track. And then I'll move them around and start building new tracks to him.
1: Hey, Answer something for me. Mm-hmm. And this is nerd shit. What drums did you use for for Zonat? I can tell that's a, is that a James break? This this boy Of course it is, because <laughs> the 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 bongos sound so familiar. I was never once did it occurred to me just spin it backwards so you can hear what it is. But okay.
3: basically, I mean that that's been funny because the, the stand in world loves or hates that record. Who there, there's stands who hate that record. Like that was part of the I hate what Salam does with Nas <laughs> conversation. Who
1: ever said that? There's Based a lot of people.
3: That, I'm telling you, there's a lot of people that, that 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 was like basically that that era. But for me, there's two things. One, I never put my name on records. So when you hear him yell my name on there, I wasn't there. They mixed it without me. So I never would do that. I wouldn't have let him do that. Because I feel like if the record is going to be dope, then like it because you like it, not Not because you said my name. So I don't tag records. I don't go, I'm going to make you dance. Like, I want the record (laughs) to make you dance, not actually tell you that. Um, And it wasn't mixed that. And then K-Slay was in the room when I was actually making that track. Mm -hmm. And it was the same day, like, when I made Probably Get Down. So I was just sitting there messing with different James vibes. And if you listen to how Nas sounds on the record, differently from how Jungle and Wiz sound on the record, some people have different feelings of Braveheart. So they sound, you know, Jungles versus this, Wiz is that. But if you actually hear him cutting straight across it with his K-solo type flow, mm-hmm. you kind of hear more like what the record's rough really felt like. So the drums were crispy and popping, the bass was on it. But it was me just being backwards, Paul Revere meets P.E.
4: That's all it was. I've never been in a chat room where they said that you're... Yeah. I've seen it on OK Player before. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, but different I people. Seriously? Probably. Yeah.
3: yeah. Damn. That's the world. But I mean, just in general, our work isn't really about beats all the time. Sometimes it's about different uh, levels of song. And the reality is Nas picks his albums based upon what he said, not based upon who had the snare of the week. <laughs> wow. And if the beat is too loud, he won't even actually rhyme on it. He like it sounds like it's yelling at me. Turn it down.
1: Yo, it's some some like successful platinum rap- rappers hate loud music or loud drums. I think Jay once told me once like you know like he doesn't want anything to upstage his voice or uh, outdo him. Okay, so they go more for bass than for yeah, big eyes. ass. Yeah, and
3: for Nas, it's moves and chord changes and other stuff because once again. A lot of, you know, outside of Tupac who would stack his vocals with six tracks or 50 who might do a few, Jay or Nas, they most of the time have one vocal track. One vocal track that's telling you everything you got to hear at whatever tone he
1: wants to tell it in. Oh, that's stacking your voice, rhyming on. I hate when pop does that. It's it's a sound for that. That's the T.I. That's the, you know, certain people do that. But, okay, I'm saving the best for last. All right. Well, damn. Let me get... Cause Jasmine too, fuck, Jasmine. I want to Amy. I gotta get the Jordan I got to get the. I got to get to Amy. Got it. So how, how did you just? How did you even? Link
3: with well, Amy. So I did a record called for Left Eye uh, during that 2001 period.
1: That solo record.
3: Yeah, it was a record called Block Party.
1: Yeah. Um. You worked on
3: that. I, I, I did Block Party. Here. The, the
1: supernova
3: supernova, supernova. yeah it, it was weird basically what happened with that record is that LA Reed had really wanted her to sign up to do that TLC album that was supposed to get worked on at that time and she wouldn't do it so she Mark Pitts had first like he took a break after I think big past a couple things went back to school and that became his first and r project he needed to do. And then he hit me up like, yo, you work on different stuff, whatever it was. So then we linked and I did the block party record, which was for me, it was always the thing of, I have a theme like with Miss Dynamite with many artists where I just need them, people to feel like they're a regular person from around the way. So that was meant to be Lisa's block party in Philly. You know, the sound of it. What's your name, Lisa? And where you from? Nine street. It was just supposed to be an energy of a block party and having fun. And like, the- oh, dance with me keon <laughs> bryce and me are kind of messing around doing that and you know just even using the Columba song with the Udu drum that's all that track really is it's a Earth kick
1: right yep so yeah. it's,
3: it's a kalimba song Udu drum and a kick and basically it was just kind of floating on its own world, and you know i got somebody to do it was just a play play around record so however it is that record becomes her single And they were supposed to shoot it on a block party in Brooklyn. And then somehow they go shoot a video somewhere else and it doesn't pan out. But anyhow, Amy Winehouse hears this record and says, whoever could figure out what to do with that record is who I need to produce me. They're going to know what to do with me. So she goes to... The most
1: unlikely (laughs) example of a record.
3: Yeah. Well, once again, it was Amy's ear where she wanted to be. So she was like... That's who it is, so she, they went to EMI Music Publishing in London, really trying to get to me, ended up getting signed. During this interim, left eye passes. I moved to Miami. I'm like, if it's not good people, good music, good money, don't call me. I'm semi-retired. Or if it's good people and good music, the money's gonna come. So that's been my mode since '02 when I first moved. And when I looked after she passed at the first day that I met Amy was May 21st, May 27th, 2002 left out's birthday. Oh, wow. mm. So it comes back around. So basically, um, and that's what it was. She came in and guy Moot in London, convinced me to meet her. Just take the meeting. And I was like, just leave me alone. No, just take the meeting, meet her. And she walked in, she had a little guitar and Nick Szymanski was with her. And I was like, all right, so uh, what are we going to do? And she pulls out a guitar, and she starts singing Girl from Ipanema" and you know, those high ceilings in the room, and the whole room lit up. And I was like, oh, you can sing. Because from the demos I heard of Amy, Amy, Amy and other stuff, I couldn't tell if it was another wannabe Eric or Mime or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really – I was like, eh, leave me alone. This isn't it. And basically that's was the start of it. And then that day we wrote Cherry – and I heard Love is Blind. Uh, When she passed, where were you when you got the word? I was in London. I was on my way to her house. Basically, um, she... Had messed up the tour. She was like, "Ah, I think I messed up the tour, which well, she didn't want to go on in the first place." So now I can go to Nikki's wedding. Nick, who I met her with in the first place, was getting married. That was the manager that she wrote, you know, rehab or whatever else about. But they were in similar in age. She was maybe a year or two older than her, and it was like a, her brother. So he was like, "Now nah, we can. Go. I can go to Nikki's wedding." Okay, cool. Uh, the wedding was on Sunday at Lucien's house because Nick is Lucien's nephew. I was. Got there on Thursday. I'm always talking to the security guards, they you all know, Jamaican. Yeah, I go, eh, boss over here. Like, eh, cool, we having our conversation. And I was like, yo, you know what? She wasn't drinking for like 10 days before that, and she started drinking a little bit. I was like, you know what? I'm going to come on Saturday and make sure she's good. I was in Shepherd's Bush, not far away from where she was at, but I was like, I'm going to go. And, you know, make sure she's good before we go to Lucien's house on Sunday just so no mess starts at the wedding where she might say something crazy. But it was supposed to be all jokes. Cool. And then Saturday when I called me, I'm at the jerk chicken spot. Yeah, I want something. I'm bring some food. Then he hit me back and said she passed. She passed on a Friday night. Wow. So I was close by and didn't get a chance to really go see her.
0: Can you tell us something, like, dope about Amy that most people wouldn't know that, like, you got to experience that you wish that people wouldn't know?
3: Um, one, she's an absolute comedian. It's um, mm-hmm. constant, constant, constant. Got something smart to say, like every fourth bar of the minute. <laughs> like you're not going to get past three bars, and then she's not going to say something smart about somebody something. Um, yeah, that that was that, and then also she remembers stuff. Her memory was like super sharp, so. If she remembered, your daughter must be nine now. It was her, Brianna, right? Okay. Like she knew everybody's kids, their names, where all the pieces were of people that she maybe hardly saw, but like really had a strong memory and sense of who and what and kind of her perspective of why super uh, impulsive and serious hey, see that song? Can you delete it from my iTunes so it will never play again?
6: <laughs> <laughs>
3: like, what was that? Like, have her iTunes on shuffle and if something plays, she didn't like, just delete it. I never want to hear it again. Thank
4: you. Was no. the, what did you think of the documentary? Was, you think, was that a good representation of who she really was?
3: Um, I think the documentary was... um It was insightful for a lot of people who only saw her as, you know... A mime of herself Trouble. at a certain point Singer and, yeah. at that point but it was also being able to show humanized part of it but what i didn't like about the documentary was that it villainized 100%. her father which you know my friend yes but that was that man's daughter and you don't turn around and put that man in a history book or on video as just the enabler, the... yeah. The but whole, however yeah. you want to spin it, that's your perspective. So I didn't agree with that. And you also don't turn around and say, well, but then also the Amy Wiles Foundation, it's England didn't have any go-away rehabs. There were none there. So they're actually opening those things. They're doing many different things that are possible. You just took the negative and then left it at the negative because it suited your narrative better. And that's what I don't like about the idea of someone else having the ability to taint your story one way or another. It's like, no, the truth in many different people's eyes is from their eyes, but that's not, I wouldn't do that. That's not right.
5: Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now.
6: And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.
7: I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States.
4: Oh, how do you navigate, just sitting here talking to you, you seem to be a pretty laid-back, like, introverted dude. How do you navigate the networking part of the game? Because you don't um, seem to be, like, to go out and party and, you know. Nah, I anymore. did that. I did that in the 90s. Yeah. That's over. Um,
3: I think in general, it's really first things first. You know, the reason why I've been in my space creating, I feel like the quality of product starts the conversation. So there was a point when a guy moved, my publisher in London, was like, hey, you don't want to be 40 with a beat tape. Like, what are you going to do? And I really took that on in my early 30s. Can
4: you say that again? I mean, boy. He said,
3: you don't want to be 40 with a beat tape. What are you going to do? And basically, you know, I was like, what's that? Yo, play number three again. Y'all crazy. Right. <sighs> like, you know, I stressed out about it. Four sound like the Neptunes on the. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm i love that movie. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's going to go through it. But basically, um, I just looked at it like, yeah, you're right. So, you know, I attacked the Hollywood side of it in my 30s and really. You know got a space in hollywood and really got at the movies and you know did the sex in the city movies and scored tyson and really took some time to learn the whole process of what it takes to do that by scoring Sorry. tv shows and different all that stuff and then you know by the time um i was 40 then amy had just passed so i was like that. i met her after my 30th birthday and she was gone before my 40th but she came and did something so then I decided to go and, you know, have my labels at Sony, Flying Buddha, Loud and In Life, sign the Mac Wild, sign the Hiatus yeah, Coyote, Coyote yeah. all those different bands. So I still felt like I was taking a coach's job and, you know, shaping it that way. And now that I've learned, you know, I had to cheerlead a record by Omi on my label. And I was like, oh, a billion streams? Oh, this should do well. <laughs> oh, let me see. Oh, this is how y'all kind of stick. Okay, cool. So now I just understand, you know, I watched a lot of Narcos. <laughs> and Pablo will go to Bolivia and put it in cabs and do what he needed to do in order to have the product. And if we don't have the product, then there's no conversation. There's no reason why, you know, I'm not even going to say America. This planet is allowing large black men to come in and take their money out of their pocket unless I have goods.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so I back I got to Amy Winehouse. <laughs> <laughs> we just went all over the place. Yeah. Um I guess the most important question is one how did how were you Amy and Mark able to assuming that you guys never were in the room at the same time I never saw until the war shows okay Mark so Ronson, how right?
0: yeah. I'm just yes. okay
1: thanks how were you and Mark Ronson able to sonically sort of achieve this to have the same achievements on back to black and make it sound like a cohesive record because I still feel like one person produced that record and why in God's name didn't um yeah the song that opens the 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 UK version of the album not make a addiction uh Addicted. addicted addicted why didn't that make the American version of the album that to me was like my favorite song on the album.
3: They they took it off. Um, I'm, actually, so th- th- for your first question, it's Amy. Amy tied the album together. Um, all the songs we actually just recently did a documentary with Jeremy, who's done like Catch a Fire and all that other stuff, mm-hmm. uh, the Phil Collins ones, um, which should be I guess coming out sometime soon. I think he's doing it at a Can, um, in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. But basically, um, all the songs that I did on Back to Black. Were recorded in between frank and back to black so all of my songs were really written first so addicted and just friends were written to be christmas bonus songs for frank that we never ended up doing mm. so they were written probably the end of 03 into 04 somewhere around there before everything else um it was written like probably the end of in 04 and then me and mr jones which was originally fuckery was around and um, Tears Dry was actually written during that process as a ballad,
1: which was sped up later.
3: But basically...
1: So your songs came first, and then Ronson came in. Right. And so her was.
3: whole mode of recording, which you know she got from me, which was basically we sit down, and she might be playing guitar or just doing something basic, and we would get the whole entire song, and then I would do the arrangements. So that's how she got accustomed to writing. So by the time she went to Mark... We had already gone to the record store, we bought the Five RLs, we bought the Shangri-Las, we bought all the pieces. She already knew these are the things that I was around blank, I was listening to this, I'm listening to You Are My Destiny by Paul Anka, I'm listening to all these different records. And she knew where she wanted to go. I'd started doing it when she got with Mark, they continued and wrote some more. And then she was like, well, dag, I still have these songs, I wanna use them. So me, me and Mr. Jones, which I have versions that are kind of more jazzy. Mm-hmm. It was like, hey, why don't we put a walking guitar on that? You know, and Then she remembered when I was doing Bridging the Gap for Nas that uh, Dara was like, chick boom chick boom So that was kind of, she was like, let's put the chick boom in the walking guitar on me and Mr. Jones. So then that version becomes that um, tears-drying their own. I just felt like there was too many ballads. All Amy's songs were written at 82 beats per minute and kind of in similar chord frames. Mm-hmm. And I was like, we gotta speed it up. I had a multi to Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Oh wow. And I was like, I was listening to it without the song on it. And I was like, you know what, you can sing it over there. She couldn't figure it out for the longer. So I ended up singing it and then she re-sang it over me. (laughs) And then we did the whole track over. So that was the reason for it. Just to give something that was a obvious up 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 thing you know when we did the modulation on the original she was like no 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 it's gonna sound cool in the game take that off
1: (laughs) so it was
3: probably putting that in pocket
1: were you using the same studio or because i mean now especially in the age of 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 where we are now with plugins and really i mean this album being a pioneering record and, and reestablishing that that nostalgia culture even though yes i know that that tone was you know doing their thing for at least like six years with sharon jones and whatnot mm-hmm. but um did we use the same studio for mark songs and my songs no no i'm just okay. how did you I'm, I'm especially for like fuckery like were you using your, your you studio it, you always used or
3: actually at that time um all the songs for back to black i've the studio that is now my studio in my house she walked into my living room and i had two story high ceilings and she's like i want to sing right here and i was like what she was like no can i sing right here so i basically put a kit and put a piano and my amps and everything into my living room so the sound of me and mr jones is the sound of my living room wow, wow. that is the room and she's singing standing in the middle of the floor with the you know pretty much a 47 in the middle of the room a little carpet underneath for the drums everything is in the room and then we would just move stuff around it i
1: would just i, I would just never think that Achieving uh, that that sonic quality was even possible because even with Steve and I at Electric Lady Studios, like mm-hmm. you know, one would think that with the and, you know the, some of the mics and 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 the amps and and the equipment is still from when Jimi Hendrix was there, right? But I wouldn't even fathom or think that that sound could be achieved, and so honestly, well, she's you telling don't. you make it sound like the fifties. Like how long? would... How long was the work process until you finally found a way to make them drums sound like?
3: Honestly, I, I would give a lot of credit to my recording engineer, Frank Siccaro. Um How old is he? Frank is probably... He's, he's probably 38, 39 now. At that time, he was in his 20s. Oh, nice. um, what? But Frank was also a... Um, he liked music. He was a hip-hop head. He liked Beatles. He liked everything else. We recorded my songs on back to black on a through a digi 8 using digital performer like wow. it was like basically Stompbox. we read about how rick rubin or different people would get a house
1: mm-hmm. and kind
3: of record i didn't have any equipment at the house i had a studio downtown but it was like okay we're going to record here so he basically looked around it and i knew what i wanted to hear and he knew what i wanted to hear and he captured you know even what we were able to do with the motown replay in that space It was kind of like, you know, Mm -hmm. musicians was like, how are you going to do this? The horns were all done, you know, on a, what is it, the Roland 8 track recorder? or something like that. The VS. 1608. They recorded in New York in the room. You know, Vincent Henry, who was my ace musician, who's played on everything from somebody else's guy to Jiggy to whatever else. He would just be sending me horns and different pieces, all the flutes and all the arrangements and putting pieces together. But the way we were able to put it back together, reamp it, put it through some Music Man's, still have all, you know, my Soundworks mics, the TLMs and the 47s capture it back, but we knew what we wanted to hear. So that process, I can't say it was hard, it was just about focus and knowing what we liked. And basically, you know, as you know, collecting stuff that feels and sounds like break beats. So when you're saying, no, give me the green snare and you know exactly why you're going for it and everybody else might just be oblivious. It's a similar process of just getting through it.
1: But I never thought it was the equipment. I always thought it was the engineering. And I just never had the, you know, until I heard Back to Black, then I was like, OK, then it is possible to achieve the sound, but. Even then, once I mean, once I figured it out, it was, you know, like by 2010, almost like, mm-hmm. even five, six years after Back to Black came out, I just. Yeah, I mean, we we really worked at it, and then those stuff that I
3: did, even in New York, that kind of has that type of energy. For me, it was a thing where I was collecting records. And I always liked the record. So my dad was like, "Looper of I'm like, all right, cool. But I, the reason why I was sampling Incredible Bongo Band was because of the Sonics. It wasn't just because King Ericsson was killing. Then when Michael Wiener gave me a bunch of things, I was still trying to figure out, I think I might have even sent you one one time when we did Love's Theme. Mm-hmm. I was trying to make the Sonic feel as urgent you know and that's really what it is like you know even when i'm recording nas i'm trying to get the sonic energy so i'm standing next to that speaker and i feel like i'm moving i'm imagining what paradise garage feels like i'm imagining what the red zone feels like i'm imagining what the fever sounds like and if the sonic uh warfare as i call it doesn't actually hit you the way it should that's as important as the lyrics being stronger than the kick if the lyrics hit you the right way it's rebel without a pause like how do we get back to that that's intensity in the samples. That's also intensity in engineering. That's intensity in the lyrics. The vocal it's about the way it's all coming together and then ultimately how it's captured. If that song had a different mix, it might not have ever been what it was. And I think that, you know, having that understanding and feeling that way about certain pieces of music, I'm twisting knobs until I feel it.
1: Which leads me to we're, we're getting to the end of this journey, but let's start the rapid fire shit, the random <laughs> questions. Okay. Which leads me to get retarded uh, now. With cannabis. Yeah, with cannabis. Oh, you produced that? Yes. I thought, I I thought told Cliff you. always did that record.
4: We, who? No, I, I thought, thought. Wyclef did that one. No, no. This <laughs> shit was funky.
1: <laughs> First of all, with 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 the Hawaiian guitar thing and, and uh, then Marvin Gaye, <laughs>
4: <laughs> it was
1: just so. no. It was such a radical record that I. I liked it, but I was just like, why? What the um, hell was
3: y'all thinking? <laughs> so basically what um, some people do, they now call it, I think, Rhythm Roulette or something like that. Yeah. I had a wall of records in my apartment. And what I say is, grab me three records. And whatever three records you grab, I got to make something. And that's the three records I pulled to that day. The LA Boppers, <laughs> Shantae and Biz, and I Want You. And that's where it came from. So I basically had those records. And it was like, ah, one, two, get, 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 get get
6: retarded. (laughs) And
3: that's what I picked off of the records. I could have sampled something else off the records, but that's what I caught and how it fell together.
1: Now, in in recording that, I'm certain that the energy and the excitement was in the air because the buzz on cannabis couldn't get any hotter. It was like, what, the energy that Eminem had, mm-hmm. I feel like Eminem is the, and we can't discount the fact that Eminem's Eminem. whiteness. Uh, we can't right. ever <laughs> discount whiteness. Yeah. Right. We can't discount. <laughs> but what I'm just saying, that at one time in 1996, there was hope and energy in the air. That cannabis was gonna be the underground lyrical yeah, master. The beast like, from
4: the east, the Lost Boys joint. Like that yeah. was his
1: Matter that of that back, was like his Winter Wars verse. The very fir- yes, the very first, mm. even the first time I met Jay through Common, mm. he was like, Yo, I can't wait to hear this cannabis, right? See what he got. So boy, boy. what were your feelings of that was what went wrong? What'd you say? <laughs> that was the first
4: CD I ever sold back to the store. To be honest. <laughs> damn. Oh. So, yeah, oh, I mean, so well, No, look, I thought. That's I, I thought. White <laughs> did that record because I didn't like. I didn't like that joint. <laughs> <laughs> and so now I, just, I was like, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> I
1: was like, when, damn, Cliff fucked that up. It took no, 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 no. It took a minute, but it was just like when I heard the the Hawaiian loop, and I was just like. All right, this is obviously some next shit that I'm just not up on. Yeah, you're not ready for.
0: <laughs> so did you kill cannabis or? Nah.
4: No, that was no, actually no, one of the. Yeah. Nah, that okay. was actually one of the only joints. That Wait, who did, that did I second round sex? knockout? Wyclef.
1: Walkley and Jones. That's and the George. one. Yeah,
4: that's the one. I we're we're like true. second round knockout. I like second round moms. knockout, but
1: I knew it was She's at least we know when Biggie's death day is this weekend.
4: Greatest of all time died on March 9th
3: in your moms, your first second and third bone. Have your wife get on the home come in and
4: And I knew it was over for cannabis. Like I don't know if y'all remember, like, when they used to have the thing, it was on MTV. And it was like basically they would like play a video and then they would have like people like talking about it or give their opinions, or whatever. And yeah, it was like a kids of the type joint. And they played uh cannabis, second round knockout. And I remember it was, like, these four, like, teenage, like, white kids. Oh, no. And they were all like, oh, well, you know, he's, he just sounds so angry. And, you know, he just, this guy just, they were, like, dissing the record. And when I heard, I was just like, it's it's a rap. Because the hood, like, the, we loved it. That was, like, the hip-hop heads loved that record. But when I saw that there? shit, I was like. I mean, he he my, my perspective on. What do you think on, the disconnect
3: on, was? My, my perspective on Cannabis' record, first, I didn't expect them to keep that track. Because we did that one. But we all just sold a record called Doomsday News, which was the track that Wyclef used for Where Fuji's at years later. <laughs> <laughs> it started off the, start of the Eclectic album. It's the first song. Oh, on wow. It. So that was actually on Cannabis' album. And, you know, that was a track that at one point Hank Shockley had, you know, two-wayed me or something at the time and asked me to do beats for a public enemy thing. So that's what my mindset was with it. That was a song I actually thought he was going to keep because it meant something. For whatever reason, he decided not to use it. And I think, you know, Cannabis had beat selection issues as far as I was concerned. But Mm. basically, he always had the lyrics, but he just kind of pushed the wrong way with it. And the things that I'd actually recorded with him that people never heard was I made him switch his flow. I was like, you said the best MC died on March 9th. Look how many different flows Biggie has. Now you're just rhyming, rhyming, rhyming to the Mm -hmm. point where somebody be like, man, there's a guy downstairs, he was rhyming crazy. I was just cannabis, ignore him. Rappity rap,
0: rap, rap. And then after a while, you
3: rappity rapped yourself to a point where no one actually would hear how great your lyrics were because Mm -hmm. you gave it to all of us in the same cadence, which was uh, unfortunate. And you know, I did a lot of records with him that I thought were really dope but he just basically... Also, mad elitist in a way. Just, it's
0: like hip-hop elitist in a way. I don't need change my flow. It's the
4: lyrics. It's just, <laughs> it's like, nah. Yeah, he just he
3: turned into a computer, really. I mean, he would rhyme, and he was of the first people I saw that would write their rhymes in a computer and be moving it around. But it was just like you're so smart, you outsmarted exactly. yourself. Exactly. To the human connection, to the, the, the actual ability to really have a conversation in your songs on top of being able to rap really well.
1: Every cannabis uh, experience I had, Starts with us starting the beat, like him getting on stage, and then like mid first. Wait, 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 wait oh, okay. and then he has to let you know exactly what he said. Oh yeah, because that's the what they Fuji do. in the movie. Yes. Oh, the man, movie. yes. Boom, Pou, surprise That's Did you hear that?
4: That's like I've done at least. And that's the thing. Is like if you, tell, see, if you have to explain the punchline, then it's not a good punchline. Mm. If, if you don't get it just off rip if you gotta break down then that shit is if wild. you gotta tell but me uh, deep, like, it really
0: like wasn't deep yeah. that's like how that, my daddy did that my album dad. was
1: one of the many things that happened in 1997 that just really killed the momentum that the idea of New York was having in hip hop and, and, uh, and MC
4: uh, well, the there, I mean, there's a lot cannabis, there's the Wu-Tang DMX Nori. there's yeah Cannabis DMX Nori yeah that was their freestyle
1: but I mean you know DMX was, Nori's
4: was, had Success.
3: Right, but that, that was like the uh, Cole Kendrick Drake was DMX <laughs> Cannabis Nori freestyle on Hot 97. And they all seemed like they had it going. Just Cannabis didn't keep delivering records. That's all it comes down to. You know, having the greatest talent, being the best musician doesn't mean you're the best composer. Being the best singer doesn't mean you have a good song.
1: So is that the producer's responsibility or is that the artist's but responsibility? Well, sometimes the
3: artist has too much power and they just don't want to get out of their own way. You know, we all know some really, really great talent that can't make a record or get it together. You know, 30 years in, I could play you records that I did 20 years ago. Wow, this is great. Whatever happened to them? Let me try to find them. Like, <laughs> we drive up the right alley, yo. That's <laughs> like that—that's what it is, and it's unfortunate, but it's real. Jasmine,
1: Jazz. talk about Jasmine. Um, Sullivan. I'm again, sorry,
3: Jasmine Sullivan. Jasmine Sullivan. It's for me. It's like you know, kind of where I want to be. Core business, great voice, mm-hmm. great stories, and then I just got to find a good baseline. And you know, I worked with Jasmine when she was on job when she was 13 or 14. So we already had somewhat of a familiarity by the time she was on um j records and then peter edge really wanted her to sing she cut a version of there's a song um that keon bryce originally did um, that was on naz's album there's a war on the streets tonight basically she cut a version of it but then during that session we also did lions tigers and bears that's my shit. and Mm. another song and basically she sang lions tigers and bears the idea I was like, all right, hold up, gave her a click track, and then I just started playing around it, and then she finished the song to the track. And that became my mode of working, where she might sing me an idea or tell me an idea of a chord, and then I would flush it out. You know, 10 seconds was like that. She had a ding a ding a ding a ding a ding a ding And then I just took it, played it, and expanded on it, whatever she was hearing. But our chemistry um, is like, you know, certain people I have large bodies of work with just because we just work together when, when we work and i probably have 40 songs with jasmine then nobody's ever heard what you think
0: describe her uh her songwriting because i feel like that's one of the appeals of jasmine too is the way she
3: yeah Um, I mean, she just go to the point. The the reality is that, you know, unfortunately, unfortunately, I've been able to work with a lot of people who write autobiographically. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of stuff she said in the songs that she either went through or she did. Not much of it is just straight up imagined. Mm -hmm. And then now (laughs) when they're at a really happy point in their life or a certain point, the song (laughs) is... They don't know how they feel about the song, so then that's not necessarily what they want to express at that point. Yeah, I'll and put it then this Then that way,
1: slows down the the
3: records coming out.
1: I'll put it this way: you and I both know uh, the victim who got his car busted. Fuck, we do. We do. Oh, wow. Anyway, <laughs> no, it's it's like that. And I always, did you work on the second album? I worked on all albums up today. I played drums on. I don't know if you. they it. Ding, ding, the Aunt Bell record. That's what the one. And okay, yeah, they brought me the track and I, I played. But when I was listening to the lyrics, I was like, "Yo, was crazy." Redemption song. Did she go through that shit? Yeah.
3: No, that's she great. didn't. That's the same person that she did the other thing, bro. That's all. That's that was. All, so
1: all what, same what what there's song No about, way that she went through those lyrics in redemption because the
3: lyrics in redemption, one verse is her as the person who's doing
1: it, and the other verse is her experiencing it. Oh, man. But did her herself, did she go through that shit? Yeah. All right, they brought me a song, Redemption, so yo, just put, put your drums on it. And I didn't bother to even listen to the song before I started. I just, I said, yo, just, Steve, you know, put it on the reel and I'm a to drum to it first take. And my jaw was dropping because I, I, me and like knew Jasmine when she was sneaking into Black Lily mm, as yeah, a twelve doing her homework as a ten year older. Mm. This is the same person to whom like her her dad and Rich would beg the the club owner to let this nine year old girl come upstairs. Her mother <laughs> to
0: this day goes everywhere with her, but all right, you know she yes, she can't does see everything at all the
1: time. Yes, she does. Yeah,
3: man. Okay. So, but some yeah. of that was also metaphorical. Okay, now you. Yeah, yeah. Know. I was like, what? The, the rock tastes me. Yeah, the rock. Yeah, I know that, I man. need you. I wasn't supposed to be here, but I need that rock. Yeah.
1: Like that's not. I I get it, right. but it's just still the the fact that this ain't the you're on my mind all the time, <laughs> <Right>. Brian <laughs> Alexander now, When I raise
0: your hair, <laughs> your hair is <laughs> very. Smooth.
1: I'm just like she's a mature, like you know. So what? What are her just her goals and what she wants because I also know that she feels a certain way that the world's embracing Adele who is her age and not her and yes besides um, the Captain obvious reasons well she's mentioned that you know we're well I don't even know if she's on social media anymore yeah, oh
3: well, Jasmine it, I pops
1: up once every month or two right <laughs> I mean
3: the thing is right now I mean I, I was you know, around a few months ago I just think she's happy you know because when many people when they get to work and when they're really young at some point, they want to catch up on life and not necessarily revolve their life around a recording or a touring schedule. Mm-hmm. So from what I can capture, that's just where it's at. And she has music. Like, you know, we got together for a couple of days, and chemistry-wise, stuff comes up all the time. It's just is that the priority is this record right now. You know, I think some music's going to come out really soon, though. But in general... You know, yeah, well, could you do that? Well, insecure? All right, cool. Let me this she would just do it. But it's, Jasmine's pen is next, next, next level. And I think it is. for me, it was the thing where when I first worked with her, you know, the label's like get Harold Lilly in, get this person in. And I was like, nah. And by working on Lions and Tigers and then Busther Windows, they were able to see that her pen was better than everyone else's. The same with, you know, helping... Lauren's pen from Fuji time into where it became or helping Miguel, you know, who had written many songs, but kind of helping them focus on different things with the, all I want to use, helping uh, Jasmine be able to folk Amy, you know, Amy had different people that wrote uh, you send me Flying and stuff with her, but her pen was better than everyone else's. And, you know, I kind of play off, I ask the right questions while we're recording to help people kind of do it. And then I make them do it on their own and sometimes it's challenging that they'll get mad and don't like it and sometimes <laughs> they actually
1: rise to the occasion. When you walked in earlier, you talked about working on Miguel's new record. Um, which is a total he was not the artist I expected him to be like when when he first came out the bet, again, I thought it was just a regular like, oh, R&B artist. Oh, okay, oh, yawn. Right. And he's stepped outside of that box. So, I mean, how 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 did he manage to do that? Like his
3: I think um once again, it was just seeing all the possibilities. You know, From the All I Want Is You time, that wasn't necessarily who he was. Miguel had been signed since I think he was 15 or 16. And he did Quickie and Short Thing, which were you know his number ones, while he was still in another production deal years ago. So by the time he was really getting a chance to make his record, it was really Kaleidoscope Dream. Yeah. And we actually did uh, How Many Drinks and all I Want Is You, this is the first day I met him. When we first started How Many he Drinks, he's like, it's too r and B. I don't want to be in the Donnell Jones land. I'd rather do something else. Give me something that's with guitars. That's what I thought he was. And he said he didn't want to do that. So he was like, yo, give me something with guitars. So that's why I, did the All I, I gave him the All I Want Is You track, which I originally made for CeeLo. But it was just like, it's guitars, yes. So then he went for it. And it became what it was, and it was still like him trying to find himself because he's like, this is so East Coast, and that's you and Mark with that New York, I'm from the West Coast. All right, cool, here, take this Larry Schiffer beat, you know, and that became Kaleidoscope Dream because I gave him the Dre beat, equivalent of the the opposite. And then he Kaleidoscope Dream, and then he played the the part of the middle. But at the end of the day, his signature song to date is Adorn, which is all Mm -hmm. produced by Miguel. That's him You know, in his studio closet room, you know, in the late night just zoning. And, you know, he has one of those before I let go ad-libs at the end where people just know that song down to a certain point. And he's developed into that. And then, you know, his last album, Wild Heart, he did a lot of stuff that maybe wasn't received the way he wanted it to, but that's part of... Know the creative long term process where you just make a record. Oh, y'all don't hear it yet. Okay, cool. Y'all get back to that one in
4: five years. (laughs) Take another
3: one. Here, here's where you are now. So you know, Skywalker's been something different, and come through and chill was just me pushing him. You know, he didn't feel like recording, and I went and sat on the kit and started just hitting sticks and being funny, and then eventually. I was like, let's put on SoundCloud tonight. What? (laughs) Tonight, let's go. And then he, you know, I got him to do it a few days later, but we put it up, and it's been there for a couple years, but still, people like the song. They like what they like, and you can't stop that. So two years later, cool, Cole's on it. It's the new single, the video shot. All right, cool, that's great. But for me, Miguel still hasn't even realized all of his potential yet. He's still four albums in. He probably got another five or six in them.
7: Apple Podcasts, or whatever you get your podcasts.
1: When you did a uh, Mac Wild stuff, I was still calling him Michael Lee from The Wire. <laughs> the Wire. <Yep. laughs> and I was when he said, "Like I was working with Salam me, I'm like, "You!" I, I was like, "Get out of here!" I, I never knew. Um, are you two. going to continue to work with him? In the, um. And how were you able to convince him when he could have easily, uh, you know, tr- going younger?
0: He know the good shit though. He a old like he right.
3: Mm-hmm. Like More than anything else, how we first linked up was um I was in LA when I met him and then we he would always come by the studio and we'd be talking about the lack of duck sauce in LA <laughs> and just like real, you know, uh missing New York, basically. So he would come by and I was a fan of him from the wire, but he was out there doing nine oh two and zero. But he would come by my sessions while I was working on Miguel or you know, CJ Hilton or whoever else. He'd just be around me doing stuff. And I heard him singing on something that I think um, worked with him. Warren Campbell. Worked on this record called "Cold" that he had, and I heard, and I was like, mm, "Okay, cool. Your voice is getting there, and he has some ability." But I was also jumping off my label at Sony, and I was like, "All right, cool. Here's the one-two punch. If you can sing these records, then I can cut an album on you in a month. Everybody's gonna love you because you kid from TV, and you know we can jump it off real quick." And that's basically what I did. I, over the Christmas holiday, he cut on it. He wrote Henny. Okay. He sang a Rico Love song, a font song, and he nailed it. I just brought him down to Miami for a couple of days, and he showed more than you know anyone's potential thought of him. So I was like, cool, as soon as you finish TV in March, we're going to cut your album in a month, we're going to shoot some videos, and then I'll have you done before you got to go back to TV. And that album became what it was, but it also was... It got nominated, was, too. It was very yeah. nominated. Grammy nominated, and it felt right, and also just like a stamp in time. That's how I feel about it. You know, at that time I stopped kind of doing records, but I just really felt like it was a a good expression of how we felt about New York R and B, and also caught at a time when everybody in New York was like Atlanta's taking over. (laughs) All right, here go Eric B for president. Eric B for president. Oh, Mob Deep was my favorite joint, and then what I did was instead of sampling the old records. I went to Primo, I went to Pete, I went to Havoc, and was like, nah, you're gonna produce it with me. Get your disc out and now mm. I'm cut them a check rather than paying a sample for something else. So Primo went back to the disc and got me the group home pieces and reprogrammed wow. it. Pete pulled out SP-1200 disc, we did that. You know, Havoc redid that beat. That wasn't actually the sample, but we was able to kind of put it together and then they got their points, they got publishing, they got new bread, and that to me was also me, you know, Paying back. back my computer paying back my community because if I would have cleared a sample, they still would never seen the check off of it.
0: But Mac was still and he was the perfect artist cause at the end of the day he had the link to Wu Tang, he had that, and then he had the nine oh two one oh it was like perfect. Like when the first
3: time like, when Meth came to the studio to do the hook on on the album, he was like, Who been messing with him? I was like
1: <laughs>
3: What you mean? Like who 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 you been messing with? I'm like, What are you talking about? he's like like who who been doing this stuff? I was like, Oh me. He's like, because I heard some stuff before. It sounded like he was in a little, you know, rat house with his boys. It sounded like a whole other level. But once again, I saw the potential in him. Like, he still has more potential than he's actually realized. And then his last project, After Hours, is something that he did. We did Love in the 90s when he was doing the uh, the Braves TV the breaks, show. Yeah. So we had, like, some, projects, some songs we didn't put out. And then... Know he was moving on to doing other stuff, so he did his Bonnie and Clyde record with Wale, and he had his After Hours record that he wanted to put out. And I was like, you know what, just go ahead and do, do it your way. But I still, you know, talk were you working with him again, days. or yeah, for sure, for sure. It's like you no low bro, basically. And he still passed through. You, know, I gotta come to Miami and vibe with you or whatever it is. I probably seen them all.
4: Okay, how did hiatus? Uh, how did you discover them? Uh,
3: D Prosper actually.
1: D Prosper. Um,
3: Deep Prosper.
1: All people? <laughs> Deep Prosper
3: actually brought that to me and was like, yo, this is band. They're on band camp. They kind of crazy. You know, you're doing some stuff with your label Sony. Tell me if you're something there. And I was basically walking around Sony going, if I had a young Amy Winehouse, where am I going to put that out? So I went to the Masterworks Jazz Classical Department and Chuck Mitchell, who was at Verve and did many different things and worked, you know, at Downbeat and things over the years and was a great writer and as well I was like look I want to bring back Buddha records because Sony owned Buddha but they didn't have it for the world so then then I was like well since you can't do Buddha let me do Flying Buddha which was you know Flying Dutchman meets Buddha Mm -hmm. and hi this was you know they didn't want to do a deal with anybody but they wanted to work with me so that was just something great that I was able to pick up what they already had and talk Tomahawk sent it to Tip who doesn't like most stuff he surprisingly (laughs) said he wanted to rhyme on it Cool, I was nominated and then for their second album, I was able to kind of get in and I didn't really mess with them too much when I let them record. I was going <laughs> to say. <laughs> there was a lot in They're there. They're all
1: over the place.
3: Yeah. The, that the album is like, you know, there's basically I took all of our schooling and everything we ever know and poured it in one record. They got it off their chest. But at the same time, it was so much being there that Breathing Underwater still got nominated and, you know, oh, that's Drake's... That's the album, okay. That's the one. And Drake yeah. sampled weapon. And Drake sampled the beginning of Building a Ladder, which is the only two things that I messed with them about. I made them recutting Breathing Underwater till it felt like what I saw them doing on Boiler Room on the rooftop. That's really their performance. And um, Building a Ladder, you know, the intro wasn't right.
1: When you get a group like that, like, are you ever afraid that you'll take... Because what makes them unique is that they're not pop, that they're not right. easily digestible. But it's also like, do you feel like, oh, I wouldn't be a smart producer if I didn't tell them this is a hook, this is 16 bars, this is? Um,
3: I think it was partially that. And, I mean, they really want to be their own thing anyway. So they didn't really feel that type of pressure for me. Um, Sometimes Napalm would definitely be like, I don't want to make pop songs. But my thing is like, do I do? That's the way I, I kind of look at it with them. If we go to stevie's do i do all those notes in the middle of the hook Mm -hmm. cool that sounds like something hiatus might want to play so a little less return to forever a little bit more do i do still they're going to be who they are and really be musically pushing the envelope at all times but if we could still get something in between it that actually you know sticks there. Because ultimately Nakamura was great, but it was Love You a whole bunch of times in the middle. And nobody really knew that she was talking about something a lot deeper than that. But it was like, Hannah, my darling, Love You. Okay, we know what you said. That was it. So, and then they have other songs. They'll, they'll develop to it. That's the way I feel about it. You know, In an album or two, I don't think any artist just nails their whole life. They kind of got to get to that point. And now they're at the point... Where you know they're recording now, and it's going to come out different. Yeah, the
4: lung was my record on that on the Choose Your Weapon. That was oh, yeah. I love that. Fucking
3: song. That that album is just like it's like a, it's that's a double album to me. It's like every song has three different three different changes, movements, yeah, moves and changes. But they also it took a lot out of them, so now they will probably do shorter packages and have more because they still you know they found dedicated fans who will sit there for three hours and not know all of the words, but they will try their best to and really you just got to sit
1: and watch them like yeah I mean, I'm amazed
3: by their actual overall talent, and then also what they get out of just being for them on stage. they kill it you know most of the time they don't even have background.
1: See them live. Are there any artists that you regret not working with that you should have or you know any close calls um I was to do and it didn't happen, or nah, I think that um.
3: The only thing that like I can say is that sometimes things don't happen when they could have. I can't say that there's a real regret. You know, some of the most talented people I've met, I haven't gotten a chance to make records with. You know, there's an artist called, uh, we put out an EP called House of Cry by a girl named Cry in uh, Chicago. Mm-hmm. Probably one of the most talented savant level people I've ever met just as far as engineers, records, themselves sings octaves and octaves. But just marketing-wise, I couldn't pull it together as a label to make her management, dad management, all of it work. But at the end of the day, you know, I have 60 songs from her that I feel like still give me goosebumps at first note, you know, across the board. I think that there are opportunities where some people just don't actually meet their mark, and hopefully at some point they will. You know, it's almost like a lot of Sugar Mans out there. Does she have any product online? House of Cry EP
1: is out there, yeah
3: oh okay that it's, it's nice. actually it's, it's, it's really strong
1: did we miss anything I mean well there's a gazillion things you've done that we didn't go
4: did you do the putting. Ziggy uh, Toss It Up the low key remix that was you Oh your, yeah all, uh, all
3: the Ziggy stuff I produced okay. that, that was my first group that dad was basically was like to Toss It Up yeah uh, you going to school so I was in school for <laughs> business management and I was like well I need six months off to do this album so after that if I don't get no work I will go back to school I never mm-hmm. went back, so that was my first full project.
1: Wow. So the Roots album, no.
0: <laughs>
3: the Roots the album. Let's talk about
1: the Roots album. It's the, the stream, most I ever heard. can't pick you know the flow of it. Like, yeah, never. Well, we didn't reveal everything.
3: Did a, all right, cool. That's, I didn't understand. What we
1: just let that slide past these five people. Great, yeah. thank you. Anyway, yeah. it's late. this this is damn near a double episode. Yeah, <laughs> thank <laughs> Jesus, oh, we is. got a two week episode. <laughs> anyway, yeah, uh, Salam. Yo, man, this, this, this is probably, this is one of my, I love these, I didn't know you do that,
4: did that episode <laughs> where, you know. It yeah, comes man, nah, and, and, and for real, man, like seriously, like just as a kid, like growing up, whenever I saw Salam Remy remix on a record. And it was official. I mm-hmm. copped it. So just wow. thank you for all you did. Man. You know, it was and Thanks.
3: Trying. And it's so crazy that you just said as a kid, because I'm sitting there going, <laughs> damn! Yeah. Sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I feel it, and sometimes I feel it like that. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I'm,
4: I'm thirty. I'm thirty nine. So like, worker man, reading like supercat Dolly. Well, not Dolly, my baby. but, uh, but I, get a red hot. Yeah, get a red hot. Yeah, that was like ninety two. I was thirteen. So I'm
0: mad y'all. Look yeah. the same age. We
1: also have to get you on Chat with Sugar, which is no. even <laughs> which is even deeper Would rabbit hole of, of, of uh, information of music. Wait a minute. We like that. Wait. Speaking of Instagram, you, yeah, because oh, yeah. you, 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 you and Steve, you and Steve, do something very weird. Inst- Your Instagram is nothing but just clips of the moment. First of all, how Throwback do you find videos. these high level clips? You just take them off YouTube and YouTube.
3: Sometimes Daily Motion. Just looking for stuff. Sometimes I'm actually searching on Instagram just by hashtag.
1: Just I was about to say, aren't you about stuff? to run out of ideas? Like, <laughs>
3: you know what it was for me um, over the last year. Um, I really felt like it was just like that thing you know we get to a point in life where we made a lot of records and I'm like okay why am I making these you know when I'm working with artists I'm making records to oh so what do you want to do today or you like this or you don't like that okay I'm catering to them I'm cooking for them and I needed to get to a point where if I'm just making what I want to make erase the black boy erase the white boy this is just me hearing it I wanted to uh, find my baseline I wanted to figure out where it was so then I looked at it like core business, great voices, great baselines, great stories. So I just started looking at different people, Marvin Gaye, Dennis Brown, the people I really liked, and then looking at just watching clips of people sing to see what's coming out of their mouth, seeing, I'm still looking for that voice. I'm looking to be wowed by somebody who can do it, but that also knows how to tell a story and write it. So that's really where it was born from. So I just stopped putting pictures of myself online, which there haven't been any since last year, May. And then just continued to feed music and talk to me through that firewall. We I ain't talking about that. Then social media, we ain't really got nothing to say.
1: But as we get further and further away from the church, right? Um, do you think it's even remotely possible now for those unique voices? Like for me, like I love drum so much mm-hmm. because he has a, a voice that's like. When I first heard him, it's like like old dirty bass or whatever, like just a very unique <laughs> right. sounding voice. Do you feel as though like
3: might sound different if he cuts his mustache? I'm just playing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just playing. Just play. but, you know, drum <laughs>
1: no, but drum. I mean like no, no, no. I'm not I just like to find unique voices. I, I'm I looking
3: think. for that. This this still something that I feel like is uh, tribal for me for all of us. There's still a level of, you know, they'll have my tater salad uh, concept where I just, like, you know, you go to any person in the label, say, I made a record called Who Made a Tater Salad? And every black person in America is going to buy it. We're going to sell four million copies. They don't know what I'm talking about. Doug Morris, Clive Davis, Jimmy Iovine, mm-hmm. Lucy. Cool, but if you go to the most black American people and go, this is basically how I kept Live a Lie on Jasmine's first album. Peter, mm-hmm. um, it's tater salad. Leave it alone. What do you mean? This is something that I feel. That's a butter leather. And sometimes boom, boom, boom. it was not a jam that you're saying is a number one. It's not a copyright, mm-hmm. but it's something that's making me know that she knows where I know. Mm-hmm. She's giving me something that takes me home. And when we hear those songs, when we hear the songs that are on our barbecue playlists, when we hear that music that resonates with us, when we hear Cranes in the Sky, what is that? Mm-hmm. Where did that happen before? I don't know where it happened before, but it feels right. It's under my skin. I think that, that's what we're missing as far as even the analog conversation, the analog you no know, motion that happens with musicians is that, you know, sometimes when I'm just trying to show writers or, you know, I do camps in my house sometimes, I'm like, everybody sing Amazing Grace. Just pick a note and we just sing. Now put your hands out while we do it. We just feel it. There's something else, a resonance in vocals is a resonance in the sonics is a resonance in the music.
0: And does that make you know, me like that? No, needs to happen.
3: He's deep, man. Yeah. So I mean just just within it I just feel like there there's something sonically that happens. It's how I feel about when the organ hits this at a certain time. I want to still feel open, but I also need that movement because if I ain't getting that then you no know, I, I like this this heron level music that's going to take me somewhere. Wow oxtail gravy brown stew <laughs> sauce <laughs> i used to say on
1: oxtail gravy it got to eat something dark something <laughs> that makes <laughs> me feel like yeah <laughs> <laughs> there we go bruh like sure. i thank you very much for coming on quest bucks supreme thanks for having me i love the opportunity to run my mouth yo man thank this, you this, left this, eye. this is my favorite moment of you know of of, of the history of the show I
0: feel like we, we could probably
3: knew. do enough with like five hours if i start asking you questions, but we'll get to that. Give him one, just point. please. Don't no, see, you, not at no. all. One
1: for the Come on, one for the road. Wait, for the, come yeah, on. One. I have one more question. No. Uh, come on, you guys want me to ask this question? Yeah, you ask. Because what's the, what's the likelihood of we're going to have a, a hip-hop pioneer from New York and not ask? Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Dale's from the Latin Oh, Dale's from the Latin Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> Yo! Oh, that was that's so good. the most memorable <laughs> <the> racist song. Oh, <laughs> Mate, I
3: can see you in whole making that shit. It is What's so it? good. What's yeah. it? Funky Latin Quarter? Is that what this tail, is? Tail tail, tail Latin Quarter. quarter. I,
1: they they would clown me because I would always have Latin Quarter questions for all of our wow. mid mid classic era hip hop right. uh, acts, and they got tired of me asking Latin Quarter questions. But they're all asking the same I've ones been there. too. Like, uh-huh. all the different people always kinda of tell more or less the same story. Did you see getting the same, so like, same well, the jacket and, and the wait, did I see at the Latin quarter? With, yeah. with, I can tell you um, what's your Melly Wait, you, you have a Latin quarter? Yes, I've
3: been a Latin Quarter a couple
1: times. I gotta play for real. You just wanted to play it again. Yeah, because he's, he has a Mexican
0: voice
3: singing.
1: The <laughs> last Latin he's
0: Quarter a, story we uh, had was like Heather for Hunter. For those so. who don't
3: know about that, he is a tiny oh, Mexican. Yeah, she worked there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Latin Quarter. I've been there twice when my dad was on promotion. Oh, wow. So then he would take me with him. You no, know, I saw, you know, he take me up to BLSC, Mr. Magic. You know, I got to get something to red alert. So I went in the Latin Quarter. Paradise was outside at the door. Um, Stevie like D. Yeah, I was like 14, yeah. 13, 14. I was the ice cap. I had a Curtis Blow record out, I was
1: popping.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know? But basically, uh, Stevie D from M D's was there in the Mink, Jerry Curls on top, fade, earrings in his ears, <laughs> everything. He had a, uh, a 12 hairstyles, he had a, a bodyguard with him, pretty much the same thing. His name was K Ton. He looked <laughs> it's like a Basically, strong orangutan colored coat, light skin, <laughs> almost like a freckle face, redhead dude, but mad cock diesel, because you know, Latin Quarters was really rough. But Stevie D from Force of was going in there, you know. I guess it was probably around Tinder Love Time, maybe mm-hmm. just after that. Um, I walked upstairs. You go up, turn around. Because also, I'd always like being over there because the arcade was right underneath where the Latin Quarters was. So that block, there was an arcade in the, that where you can pretty much walk through between 7th Avenue and Broadway, mm-hmm. underneath where that was at. And whenever we were at studios in the area, I'd always want to go to the arcade. But anyhow, we get up in the Latin Quarters, I see Scott LaRock, um, standing downstairs by the booth. I see Eric B. I see Biz. Red Alert's up in the booth. My dad's like, stay right here. I'm gonna go get Red Alert. The record, Red Alert, teases the beginning of Rebel Without a Pause. Brothers and sisters, he- I see some kids running from the back, like yo, he about to play it. He about to play it. They get over to the dance floor. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what this world's coming to. Rebel comes on. That's probably one of the first times I'm hearing it, and the kids in the middle of the dance floor doing like the crazy dances to Rebel Without a Pause.
6: Bells from the left.
4: <laughs> Not laughing at the store. Not laughing
1: at the store. No. <laughs> Thank
7: you,
0: Salam. No, 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 no. Salam had a question for you. Just do you, We remember we have. He said before we get out, he can at least get one of his three hundred out. I was just saying.
4: What's your
1: question for him? Yes, I, I'll have some music ready for you to critique and.
0: Let him ask it. You don't know what he about. Nah, to
3: say. we ain't even going there. Um, actually, it's some something a lot more. I heard a story about you doing something with your drum technique whereas in you were slowing tapes down crazy and then speeding them up with a really big kick. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't really clear on your process of doing that. Like was that like something that you developed? How did you arrive at I'm gonna slow this
1: tape very down? Very speed. Only knew were very speeding because once I discovered that Prince was very speed in his voice on Erotic City and really Stevie Wonder was very speed in his voice on maybe your baby maybe a baby yeah. mm. um early roots demos or back when we were black to the future I had my dad's task cam four track thing I realized like oh I can slow you know and so I guess I was being a you know the, the uh, a pseudo uh, a, I was trying to figure out like uh, techniques to to get a better kick sound. So mm-hmm. I'll say for like a lot of the "Do You Want More" record, I would uh, I would play the initial drum tracks at at a uh, at a higher uh, was IPS, Steve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, IPS. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, hi, t- higher, and then and then we. And then it was low. I mean, it really didn't. It only served me well for You Got Me.
0: Got you it. would slow it down? You totally, you blanked yourself. You said we would go high and then we would...
1: Oh, and then slow down Normal. I mean, yeah, it's...
3: Right. So you're saying You Got Me is where you crystallize it because it actually worked to the level where you wanted it to. It got all the way through.
1: Well, yeah, that's not the natural sna- snares down. I, I very speeded the, the, the Is tape that down.
0: the end of You Got Me that I always wanted you to? Well, the just all thing. of it. Okay.
1: The whole thing. The whole thing. Once Jill and Scott did uh jill and scott Scott. that's funny uh i was going to do tails Tails, no (laughs) (laughs) jill and scott did uh the initial track to a click track and then i came in afterwards to um to drum to it at first i did it normal and then it sounds special right so then i very speeded the tape slow and drum to it and then when we played it back at normal speed it sounded like a Higher pitch, and then when I was like, "Oh, I could do drum and bass." This is how it's like my favorite Digo Questlove drum, drum moment. Got it. Well, thank you. It's not my favorite, but you know, it's cool.
0: Like, when can you do part two to that song? Like, can you finish it and then just really go in?
4: Well, water did that. I've too, done right?
1: it before. I did it on "Break You Off." I did it on "Water." "Break You Off." Yeah, you I, break I, you a, my trick on "Break You Off" was I didn't want y'all to think that we were like being greasy R&B. <laughs> so at the mastering session, I was like, yo, just give me two days. And I said, I, I got to add three more minutes to this song to wash away what you thought was <laughs> the greasy R&B song. Because
4: so. there's oh, a version of Break right. You Off that Gerald Levert is on, right? It's a few Dude, there's versions. There's 11 versions.
1: It was a, that <laughs> was a good story. And Gerald Levert actually gave the, the, the better performance. I can believe it. I will say that. Somewhere... Well, shit. I don't know. Maybe the phrenology reels are too. burned too. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, we'll word? see. Yeah, like a lot of a lot of universals uh, reels and old movies. Like lot number five, which unfortunately is the, I guess he said the letters P through T, uh, got damaged. Shit. Um, so we lost all of. Do you want more? We can't find. Do you want more? I can't find three songs on. I can't find no great pretender. Episodes or uh, uh, if uh, uh, you seen it, it probably no alibi. no alibi. Yeah, can't find the the two inch reels, nor the dats, nor the half inch reels. Oh wow! So yeah, like so pretty uh, much, we own the masters to those songs. <laughs> yeah, I, I think about like yeah, like thirty. I think like thirty-three of our reels got this story. Damn, and a lot of "Do you want more?" And so, as far as like extras and yeah, that's not happening. You
0: satisfied with your answers, Salam? How you feeling? Yeah,
1: definitely. Okay. Now we definitely got two parted. Anyway, thank you. <laughs> you. See what I did? There? Thank you, uh, Salam, <laughs> for coming. Yes. Thank you for having Won't be have a boss bill and pay bill. Sugar Steve, star of Chat with Sugar on Instagram, <laughs> On the Sugar Network, <laughs> on the Sugar Network, our own Ted Turner. Vaan and it's Laia. This is Quest Love, uh, and uh, this is Quest Love Supreme. Why do I sound so tired? <laughs> Shit, this is Quest Love Supreme. <laughs> we'll see you next go round. Thank you. Course Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI.